what are the 501c3 tax exempt bonds and how can nonprofits benefit from them? It's a bond issued by an entity that has congressional approval to issue these tax exempt bonds. And that bond is essentially just a piece of paper. The value is not in the paper. The value is in somebody willing to buy the paper. So an investor would step in and buy those bonds from the 501c3 or through a placement agent that has underwritten the project, has put together preliminary offering memorandums and everything that has to go with the issuance of those bonds. And then that individual or entity or company or firm would step in and give you $10 million for that paper. And now they are essentially your lender because they have given you the money to build this project. Their collateral is the project itself. And in exchange for that investment, they actually have the benefit of not paying any gains on their returns. What steps does a nonprofit need to take to qualify to issue these 501c3 bonds? The bonds technically have no value until somebody buys them. For housing, any 501c3 can get the bonds issued. They can get them, but can they get somebody to buy their bonds based on their project? And that goes to having experience with the compliance of owning these, of operating these. And of course, yes, you can hire management companies to operate the properties. That does add some strength to the profile of the nonprofit. But if there's no actual housing experience, it's going to be very difficult to get these bought. So, yeah, any nonprofit can qualify for them because you got a 501c3. And as long as you are organized to provide housing, you have to be very specific with the designation of that nonprofit. There are probably some other provisions that need to be built into that nonprofit to get it to qualify. And so I'm going to say that you need to consult your own attorney that's well versed in this field for the proper guidance. All right. Welcome to an episode of The New Look of Affordable Housing. We got to pay some honor to Alvin's book, The New Look of Affordable Housing, because today we're going to offer a masterclass on tax exempt bonds. And this is a finance mechanism that is elite on a whole nother level that we want to bring this knowledge to all of you and help you guys think through what are the options that you can use to finance your development projects or your multifamily investments. So Alvin, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Yeah. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. I'm great. How you doing? And I am fantastic. I feel like we have a lot of positive momentum in life right now. We got a lot of deals in flight. We got a lot of funding in flight. So man, it's great. It's an honor to be on the stage with you, man. It is my pleasure, Kent. Uh, we got so much going on right now, man, that uh, I'm truly excited about it. Truly excited about it. Yeah, and I feel like we're we're being stretched in the right way where I feel the growth every day talking to you and being part of the conversation. So I'm really, really happy that our audience gets to be part of this conversation today because they're going to learn so much. And let me kind of start by setting the stage a little bit and just change up the order of one question because maybe it helps give the right context, Alvin. If you were to give a little bit of context about how do developers typically finance their development projects, because then that can lead into why are we using and pursuing the 501c3 tax exempt bond route. Could we start with that? Maybe help us get educated a little bit on traditional finance methods for development projects. Sure, Kent. Um, I would say traditionally, the traditional way is that you put together your total project, your total sources and uses, meaning how much money you need, 
and how you're going to use it. And just say that that number is 10 million or 100 million, whatever it is. Let's say 10 million for easy use of numbers. Typically, you would have a lender that would do about, in today's climate, 50 to 65% of cost. So, I mean, if you need 10 million, probably the max you would it's, it get from a loan, some loan proceeds would be about 65% of that. So, six and a half million. So, you'd have to go out and source three and a half million yourself. A couple of years ago, we had some really aggressive lending going on, and you could probably get up to 85% of cost a couple of years ago, and then even layer that with some secondary financing with maybe Pace or somebody like that that brought in soft funds. So you could almost get up to 95% of cost a couple of years ago. And then, of course, as interest rates changed and things became a little more risky in the market, I guess, from a lender's perspective, uh, they went back to more of a traditional lending platform where you've got to put in a lot of equity to make this happen. So that, that's your traditional way of financing today. And I love that because I think that helps translate almost to the benefit of why certain nonprofits are pursuing the 501c3 tax-exempt bond financing strategy. Maybe right. let's just start there. Let's start very basic, Alvin. What are the 501c3 tax-exempt bonds and how can nonprofits benefit from them? A 501c3 tax-exempt bond, uh, I've got a, I got a technical <laughs> spreadsheet of what they are, but essentially it's a bond issued by an entity that has congressional approval to issue these tax-exempt bonds. Um, these bonds are government-approved because they are tax-exempt, meaning that the owner of these bonds or the issuer of these bonds would issue these bonds to a 501c3. And let's just say that that issuer is a government entity, a, a housing authority. They issued us those bonds for the $10 million that we need. And that bond is essentially just a piece of paper. Um, they'll issue those bonds all day. The value is not in the paper. The value is in somebody willing to buy the paper. So they'll issue them all day, assuming that you'll get them bought if your project is feasible. So essentially that bond is just a piece of paper. The collateral for that bond will be the real estate. And so the reason that they issue them so freely is because there's no value to the paper. The value is to the benefit of the project and to, to the entity or person that buys those bonds. So essentially an investor would step in and buy those bonds from the 501c3 or through a placement agent that has underwritten the project, has put together preliminary offering memorandums and everything that has to go with the issuance of those bonds. They put out this offering memorandum and then you'd have an opportunity as an investor or entities as investors to look at this offering memorandum and make sure that this project fits your bag, your criteria for investing particular market, debt service coverage ratios, and et cetera. And then that individual or entity or company or firm would step in and give you $10 million for that paper. And now they are your essentially your lender uh, because they have given you the money to build this project. Their collateral is the project itself. 
the bond for them is a way to invest in this project and reap the benefits of providing financing for this tax exempt project. And in exchange for that investment, they actually have the benefit of not paying any gains on their returns. So they loan you this $10 million at 6% interest rate, whatever that 6% interest equates to for them uh, over the course of 30 years could be who knows how many millions of dollars. They don't pay any taxes on that money on an annual basis or ever. So that is the premise of the 501c3 tax exempt bond. The difference in that 501c3 tax exempt bond for housing from a municipal bond is that the municipal bonds are used to finance schools and bridges and stuff in cities. Uh, they, I believe they have the same benefit, but I'm not really sure uh, because I don't delve in that market. So you need to do your own research. But I can tell you that the housing bonds are strictly for housing and things that have to do with providing services around the house. How's that? That's a great explanation, Alvin. And I, I, I guess for folks that are single family investors, another mm -hmm. way to think about it, about these bonds is it's almost equivalent to like a primary mortgage, uh, like a mortgage on a primary residence, right? Because that's exactly what it is. It's a debt investment. We call these bonds, these fancy terminologies, but at the end of the day, these are debt and people invest in debt because there is a lower risk profile compared to, let's say like Apple, big company, right? They issue corporate bonds. They pay interest on these bonds because they are borrowing money. However, if you invest in Apple stock, well, that's an equity position. And there's no necessarily a guarantee that you will get your money back based on the corporate stack. I mean, the capital stack. And ultimately, like, hey, what if Apple goes bankrupt, right? Who gets paid back first? Typically, your folks that are in the debt position gets paid back first compared to the equity. Yeah. So I just want to make sure I draw that analogy for folks because sometimes the word bonds can get a little scary and people don't exactly understand like how they all work. Um, next question is, well, I know that the 501c3 tax exempt bonds has to be issued in partnership with a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. What steps does a not like, can any nonprofit do this? Like what steps does a nonprofit need to take to qualify to issue these 501c3 bonds? Uh, for housing, any 501c3 can get the bonds issued. That's easy. But do you have the experience? It goes back to being a, because the, bond, the bonds technically have no value until somebody buys them. So if Kent told me that he was a doctor because he's got a stethoscope on, Am I willing to allow you to operate on me just because you have a stethoscope on? Probably not. Well, that's equivalent to a nonprofit that has no experience in housing getting bonds issued. They can get them, but can they get somebody to buy their bonds based on their project? And that goes to having experience with the compliance of owning these, of operating these, and of course, yes, you can hire management companies to operate the properties. That does add some strength to the profile of the nonprofit. But if there's no actual housing experience, it's going to be very difficult to get these bought. So, yeah, any nonprofit can qualify for them because you got a 501c3. And as long as you are organized uh, to provide housing, mm. uh, yes, you can. And so that's the difference. There are a lot of nonprofits out there. Some of them do bake sales for Girl Scouts. 
well, they probably don't qualify for a housing bond because they absolutely have no experience doing this. Uh, they weren't even organized for this purpose. So the way in which their 501c3 status rejects nonprofit, but because it wasn't geared towards this level of housing, probably does not qualify for that. So I'm being yeah. very, you have to be very specific with the designation of that nonprofit. Yeah, you can always change the mission of a nonprofit uh, to do this and provide that. There are probably some other provisions that need to be built into that nonprofit to get it to qualify. And so I'm going to say that you need to consult your own attorney for that and uh, an attorney that's well versed in this field uh, for the proper guidance in, that, in, the, in those arenas. That's right. And you have to engage the right attorneys that will help you go through the process of these issuance of these tax exempt bonds. But what I really like about the strategy is Alvin and I, just like if you were to get a commercial loan, someone else is there underwriting the deal. It's not that Alvin and Kent makes up these assumptions on our underwriting models and just pulls it out of thin air. Somebody else is also looking at these numbers, looking at the expenses assumptions and figuring out whether or not these assumptions make sense. They're within a reasonable range. And the folks that we are engaging to build the project has the wherewithal to build and complete the project. Because if you just put it on open market, like Alvin says, it's just paper. There is no value if no one buys it. And if no one buys it, the project does not get built. So I just right. want to make sure everybody understands that piece. Um, next thing is, well, these tax-exempt bonds, it sounds almost straightforward, but what are the tax advantages for the investors in these bonds? And who, who might these investors be, Alvin? Uh, direct benefits. You don't pay any taxes on your gains. So that's a big deal. And there's a feel-good component to that as well because your dollars are actually used to provide a really relative uh, source of housing today. The reason I say relative because they say we're in a crisis. And if you've got $50 million or $100 million and laying around and don't know how to do it and you're sheltering it from having to pay so many taxes on it and, and wanting to put it in a really good investment, then these types of bonds are a really good way to do that. Uh, better than, I don't want to say better than, but it's an alternative to being an LP investor in a syndicated deal because you're part of the actual debt stack. And when deals go south, 99% of the time the debt gets paid. Um, um, and so you better chances of getting your money back there. And this thing's been underwritten professionally by, you know, some of the best placement agents in the country to make these bonds really. Uh, work because nobody wants to have to foreclose on a nonprofit uh, that's providing housing for people that need it. So they underwrite these things pretty um, aggressive, not non-aggressively. Uh, some of the benefits for the project, we have a lower debt service coverage ratio. Uh, so versus the 120 or 125 in some of your traditional settings, we may be a 110 or 115 debt service coverage ratio, depending on the market. Uh, but again, some of the biggest benefits for the investors are they pay no gains on their income tax. They're invested into a deal that has uh, been non-aggressively been underwritten by some some of the sharpest people in the country to do that do these bond transactions every day. And you're partnering. I say partnering because you may only buy a portion of the bonds. You're probably partnering with a firm that's nationally traded or. Uh, publicly traded on NASDAQ because a lot of the entities that buy these are nationally 
and uh, publicly traded companies. Uh, GIAA is a Greystone entity. They they were formed exclusively to buy tax exempt bonds for uh, housing projects. Franklin Templeton is another large national firm that buys these bonds. So there are a lot of entities out there to do that. And um, if they are publicly traded companies set up to exclusively buy these bonds, imagine getting anywhere from four to seven percent yield on your money and paying no taxes on that on those gains. Uh, that, those are larger dividends for the shareholders because there's no tax impl implications there, right? And I don't, depending on what tax bracket you're in, that could be a significant upside to your to your benefit. Yeah. Right. Especially if you're a corporation, you're the highest uh, income tax bracket for right. the corporate tax income tax brackets. I mean, there are so many investors like life insurance companies that you know, would need a higher yield on their investments because they have annuities, as an example, right? So right. tons of institutional capital are looking to invest in Texas bonds for debt investments on a risk-adjusted relative basis. Again, this is not investment advice, but that's how they look at these deals. It's like it's debt and they're willing to take a slightly lower return, but you are, your risk is different. Your risk profile for these investments are very different. So- Yeah, I feel the need to say something really quickly. Yeah. And some- some really high level uh, advertising, I mean, investment stuff. And I know I got on a black hoodie and I may not look like the investment guy. Uh, don't let the hoodie fool you. That's all I want to say. We're just, <laughs> we're just having some casual conversations over a podcast and you know, you got on a t-shirt, great background, and but we kind of know what we're talking about a little bit. That's right. And and that's why our mission is to be relatable. We also understand that when we talk about these concepts, they are they, they might be foreign vocabulary for a lot of folks. Right. And that's okay. The more you listen to podcasts like these, and we assume that the audience is listening to a podcast like this, you care about affordable housing. You care about doing good with your money. You care about making an impact and serving others. And you might not necessarily be the person that is looking for the highest return on your money, but you're looking to know that you're, you're making a good impact. So this is our true mission, right? We, we don't present ourselves to be the expert on everything, but we are so passionate about this topic and we're so committed to sharing this information with everybody else so that everybody can be equipped with the same information that other folks might be in $50,000, $100,000 mastermind rooms just to learn this information. And we're right. putting this out there to show you guys our, our intentions are pure. We are here to help and we're here to share this information that we have spent many years of acquiring. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about what can these tax exempt bond proceeds be used for? Can, is, are these solely used for new construction projects, Alvin? What else can they be used for? They can be used for refinances, for purchases and acquisition and rehab acquisitions. Um, nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10. From my experience of what I've seen and in talking to my attorney who's done hundreds of these deals, um, anytime there is an acquisition of an existing asset, there's also always some money put into the deal for preservation of the asset. Um, this thing's going to be financed for 30, 35, 40 years. The bonds have a lockout period of five to seven years, meaning they can't be sold or traded because there's a minimum yield that the investors are typically looking for. And 
depending on the interest rates and different markets, that can be typically achieved in five to seven years. So guys buying the bonds, the investors want to ensure that this asset will at least last as long as their financing is in place as much as possible. So they'll set aside 10000 15000 a unit on an acquisition rehab just to ensure that you, you can update it. You can get uh, mechanicals in that are efficient, that'll last a long time so that you don't have a lot of maintenance and things like that. We're doing an acquisition rehab for ourselves right now, property that we've owned for nine years, and we're selling it to a new entity that the nonprofit will own. And we're doing that in a way to pay off existing debt and to bring in 14, 14 or $15 million in renovations to the asset. So you've got one entity that the nonprofit owns selling it to another entity that the nonprofit owns uh, in a way to monetize the equity there to pay off debt and to, to rehab the property. And like I said, put about $15 million improvements into the asset. So we've done some acquisition rehabs with these bonds and we're in the process of completing a couple of new ground up deals with the bonds as well. So we haven't been doing this a hundred years, but we've got some experience behind it. And I think that's super important for folks to pay attention. It's not just for ground up construction. You can use it to acquire and rehab a, a project. And it's essentially another way for you to refinance um, into a fixed rate debt product that allows you to have more predictable interest rates, especially as we saw how high the interest rates have gone up the last couple of years. Um, speaking of which, I mean, you talked, I mean, you talked about the lockup period of five years, but we had a scenario, right, where we were in a very low interest rate product and maybe there's appetite to refinance. Help us understand a little bit about the marketing conditions that affect the pricing and interest rates of these bonds. And what, ha what have you been seeing essentially in the market for 501c3 tax exempt bonds? A lot of activity last year. The, the bond market is not as vast as the overall market for financing these deals. You know, there are select companies that do this and they allocate so many dollars per year as their investment goals to meet. And by September last year, for most of the larger firms, that money was used up. So that means that there was a lot of activity there. What we're seeing now is a interest rate somewhere around six and three quarters. And this is January of 2024, which is not bad at all for construction debt. Um, and it's commensurate almost with agency debt. You know, maybe a half a basis point, maybe a little bit higher, but maybe not, but not on a construction project. You know, and it's fixed for 30, 35 or 40 years. So you've got a lot of leverage there. Uh, you got higher leverage, you've got long maturity dates and a pretty decent fixed rate. You know, it works. I'll tell you on a new construction project though, the downside to that is if you're borrowing $40 million, the day those bonds are sold, you're paying interest on $40 million. It's not a drawdown process. Now the money is drawn down on a draw process as it's built, you know, the contractor is paid or et cetera but you're paying interest on that total capital stack from day one. So these projects are required to be shovel ready to where when this deal closes or before it closes, you have, you gotta have permits basically in hand so you can go straight to work because you don't have six months to figure this out once, this, once the clock is ticking. And 
in order to compensate for a couple of years worth of uh, interest on that full capital stack, you got to have a real robust project that will afford the ability for this thing to cash flow in a couple of years because you're paying interest on so much money that's not being used from day one. So those are some key components when thinking about doing this on a ground up project. Um, will it float based on based on those measures? And that's exactly why we underwrite the deals, the placement agents underwrite the deals, because they also need to make sure that the rents from the property is going to be sufficient enough to cover the debt obligations to the investors in the bonds. Right. So like Alvin said earlier, when we raise the capital, we might be raising the capital with three years of interest reserves set aside. And this is because a trustee. The project. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So this is, this is real money. Um, this is... It can't be all, there must be pros and cons, right? To every single strategy. And yeah, we can get really high leverage on these activities. You get the fixed rate on the interest, but then you also have to raise the full balance of the project. So a $40, $40 million project, you might be issuing 50 million in bonds because you got the issue with the interest reserve set aside to make those payments every six months while the project is being built up. So something for, for the listeners to really kind of pay attention to and keep in mind. Well, Alvin, I, I think we talked about agency that you briefly talked about that. But then you also talked about the HUD loans, uh, the HUD 221 loans. What are those products? Like, are they up to a certain leverage? Like, what constitutes a HUD loan to be called a HUD loan? Help, help the audience understand that a little bit. Well, technically, HUD doesn't provide loans. HUD is only an insurance for the lender that's going to provide that loan. So that HUD-based lender is just a normal lender that has the ability to go to HUD and get that insurance in place for their investment. So you may reach out to a local bank that does them. Uh, in this arena, you know, where we're doing uh, larger developments, there are mortgage professionals that do just HUD loans, and they're, I'm not going to say they're a dime a dozen. There are a lot of them, though. Um, but typically, they will underwrite your deal uh, at about an 85% LTC for a HUD-insured loan. And so the thing that makes up HUD is one of the largest insurance providers on the planet. They don't just do affordable housing. They do hospitals. They do hotels. They do hospitality. They do. They provide that level of insurance for anybody. When if you think about your your mortgage insurance on your homestead, that's not a HUD product, but it's just like a HUD insurance policy. Fannie Mae or somebody has underwritten your loan and says, we'll allow you to get this agency loan, this FHA loan, and they are providing an insurance policy to the lender that mitigates their risk or their loss, mitigates their losses, uh, because if you go bad, then that policy pays the lender. Well, that's essentially what HUD does in this arena. They just provide that level of coverage for a lender to feel comfortable. Um, and so they underwrite it to HUD basic standards. You have to have a project meeting with HUD before anything's ever started. You go in and sit down with the HUD office, local office, wherever you're, whatever region you're in. Your lender is there, literally in-person meeting, uh, and you present your project. You go through underwriting, you go through the benefits of having this in this particular area, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And if they give you a nod on that, then that means they will accept an application for your project because they don't even just take everybody's application. And then your lender will prepare that application. Uh, your project does not have to be completely shovel ready, uh, but you have to have site control and there's some other things that go along with that. Uh, it's almost a 12-month process to walk it through, uh, but by the time you're there, you have a pretty decent loan with, you know, about an 85% loan to cost coverage, which is better than what we talked about earlier when we talked about the 50 to 65% LTC, right? So you go through a lot more hoops, you go through a, a longer time period, but you have higher leverage and you've got a fixed rate product um, that's insured by HUD. And that's so important to have that advanced pre-planning. I mean, you never want to be a position where you are essentially trying to get this loan in place while your construction permits are kind of ready to go. You never want to, because you're carrying the cost, you're paying property taxes, et cetera. Um, last question here for tax exempt bonds. What We talked about one of the risks is, not risk, but cons of raising capital for everything. But what other risks are there or compliance issues that are associated with tax exempt bonds, Alvin, that the listeners or audience needs to be aware of? Well, Kent, with any investment, it is that, right? It's an investment. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. <laughs> um, risk associated with the bonds the biggest risk that somebody listening to us today would say was oh man you've got such high leverage 95% leverage 100% leverage on this deal well that's a, that is a risk component because that means you have to operate this thing at really high uh, occupancy levels to make it work and low expenses and your budget and your underwriting has got to be spot on because you've got such high leverage. That means you don't have the ability to let this thing get down to 85% occupancy and float because it won't. So that's a risk. And the way some of that is mitigated by doing comprehensive market studies uh, on the area, on the product that you're offering to the, to the public to make sure that the absorption rate there, meaning that if you put 200 units on the ground, can this market fill up 200 units? How long will it take to fill up 200 units? And uh, and that you're in an appreciating community, meaning a community that is on the upside and not one that everybody's moving out of, one that has progressive job growth and not one that's losing a whole lot of jobs. And so this mark comprehensive market study helps to mitigate some of those risks associated with higher leverage on those bonds. But you'll probably have that market study on any project that you do. I recommend it because uh, you need to know what you don't know. And that market data provides a lot of that information. And so I'd say that's the highest level of risk, because if you got high leverage and if you're an investor in, say, a C tranche bonds or B tranche bonds, then, you know, you're in a second lien position. And so you want to feel comfortable that this thing will work. And so that market data kind of helps mitigate that. Um, yeah. That's a great I point. think that's about, the biggest risk profile that I see. Yeah. How about on the compliance side? Because in order to qualify these bonds, at least I believe the number is 50% of the units have to be set aside for folks making a certain percentage of income. What kind of compliance tasks can the audience expect to complete in order to 
maintain compliance, I guess, with the tax exempt status? Um, that's a great question. The average listener will not be operating their own property if they have this level of financing. So they're going to have a third party manager in place. That third party manager, in order to stay compliant, will qualify each resident based on income to live there. And, um, and so it's really simple. I'll say simple with give me uh, check stubs, W-2s, et cetera, for the last two years. Um, last, and, you know, W-2s for the last two years, just like you would apply for a house. And uh, we need to see your current pay stubs to make sure you're not over income. Uh, but we're also qualifying you to make sure that you make enough income to live here because you need to make three times your portion of the rent. And your portion of the rent is fluid based on your income level. So uh, it's not a lot. It's not onerous to provide the compliance, but you have to know what you're looking for in order to get the information to stay compliant. And so you'll have a third party management company that's first in this process to do that. And Alvin, this has been a masterclass on tax exempt bonds. It's complex, but you were able to break it down in a very, very simple manner that people can relate to. So Alvin, thank you so much for coming on to the show again. Thank you for, for sharing your wisdom. And where can people find out more about you? Where can people follow you? Uh, Instagram, Alvin Hope Johnson. Uh, we've got a Facebook, Alvin Hope Johnson. We've got the podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. Your podcast, how, how do we name it, Kent? Oh, uh, right now you can just go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Kent underscore HG. And then you can also follow Alvin's YouTube channel uh, at the new look of affordable housing. Yeah. All right. Thank All you, right. everybody. This has been an amazing conversation. And make sure you guys just DM us anytime if you guys have any questions. I'm at invest with Kent He on Instagram. So we are out and we'll be back here again next week. Whoop, whoop.